Greetings, programs, and welcome to a new Halloween special episode of the Awesome Friday Podcast. This week, we would normally be reviewing two things, and this week we're reviewing either one or eight, depending on how you <laughs> want to look at it. My name is Matthew. With me, as always, is Simon, Admiral Hot Takes. Hello. <laughs> uh, how are you, Simon? I just, I prefer Captain Highly Opinionated. Um, I'm okay. I'm disappointed you didn't start with your Vincent Price voice for Halloween. My Vincent Price voice is not that good, so uh, I, yeah, it's it's fine. It's 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 very very good. Um, I'm okay. Uh, I'm uh, I'm I don't want to use the word tired. I'm fatigued. Uh, I'm fatigued and Rest, busy, and restless. I am excited to be uh, on another episode of our wonderful podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. By the way, we've had a couple of really nice messages from people actually listening and engaging, and it's just lovely. So thank you. Yeah, there's been a real uptick in that lately, and we do really appreciate it. We actually had someone email us, and I feel really bad. I didn't actually, I just realized I didn't actually email them back. But someone emailed us and asked if they could be our intern. And believe me, if we had any work for an intern, (laughs) I would have taken you up on it, sir. Actually, can we, uh, how do they feel about Excel? Because my job has suddenly become. No, you can't just outsource your day job. No. (laughs) I could. But I could is. Isn't this is how the big businesses do it? Like delegate. Yeah, we are not wealthy enough for that, unfortunately. <laughs> That's the beauty um, of internships. It's for experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're just not wealthy enough to get away with it. Is the problem? Oh yeah, there is that. Yeah. So and uh, you know, I I appreciate that you would prefer Captain uh, Hot Takes, but uh, given the way I'm certain this episode is going oh. to go, where I think you're getting promoted to to Rear Admiral Hot Takes. Rear Admiral, you know, my country, that means something. Yeah, it's it's a naval rank. Of course it oh, means yes. something in that, England. That mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's so like you're I, a, a different country that's separated from us by a common language. Uh, yes, and if, and if all of the colonies would just speak the language properly, like say things like New York City, and then we'd all be, <laughs> we'd all be much better off. Um, so yeah, I read, I read a really interesting paper not, uh, a couple of years ago now that basically said that the way that we speak English here in the Pacific Northwest and the western half of North America really is actually closer to the way it would have been when you guys were an empire because once you guys started having wealthy people in order to set themselves apart started like exaggerating accents and people would mimic that because of celebrity. Anyway, it's a whole very interesting thing that you're... Way language accents uh, evolve, kind of like the uh, the lispy Catalan Spanish mm. that was just because everyone imitated the lispy prince or whatever the story. One prince, yeah, yeah. No, was, uh, we did a similar thing. That's very true. You can hear it in some parts of America. There's a distinct West Country like lilt um, to certain parts of the North American accents, and and obviously Eastern Canada has. Uh, I would say an Eastern Canadian accent is an Irish accent. I wouldn't be able to differentiate the two. Um, uh, yeah, that's because a lot of them are uh, very similar. Uh, I actually know someone who was like, I was talking with somebody the other day, and I'm like, so where in uh, where where in uh, Labrador are you from? And they were like, Ireland. And I was like, oh, good, awesome. <laughs> it's, it's pretty close. It's close enough. Yeah, good. How feel uh-huh. Halloween? You know, something I meant to ask you. Something I want you to tell me at the end of the show yeah. is I I really wanted to frame this Halloween Halloween special by asking you what's your perfect triple 
Bill. Like, if you could hire a cinema for Halloween and get your buddies in, and you have three movies, one, two, three, for Halloween night, and the their placement and their flow is integral to the enjoyment of the night, what would be your three movies for Halloween? Whoa. Because uh, while you think about that, I'm going to tell you mine. I'd open with um, It Follows. That would be my first. Mm-hmm. Then I, in the middle, I'd put probably something like, if not exactly like Train to Busan, something uh, high energy, high stakes. And then I'd finish the night with Army of Darkness, which I think is one of the great... It's not a horror, but... Um, it's definitely a horror. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> okay. One of the great action comedy horror movies that is a perfectly quotable. And by that time of the night, uh, you're likely... I would likely to be many drinks deep and eating far too many snacks. And that movie is just perfect for that environment. So what would be your one, two, three? That's such a good question. I think I would probably... Just choose any three Sam Raimi movies. <laughs> <laughs> Dark Man, yeah. No, seriously, I'd probably do like if I had to do like a one, two, three, I'd probably do the uh, Ar- Army of Darkness, Dark Man, and Drag Me to Hell in that order. Oh, that's a great triple bill. Yeah. And if you would force me to like consider other directors, then Maybe swap out Drag Me to Hell for Barbarian, which was this week on mm. on demand, but you I don't think you got to watch it yet. No, I, I got uh, I focused on the eight hours that we had to cover with um Cabinet of Curiosities. I really want to watch it. I it's not what I expected. Um I watched the trailer after you went crazy for it. And Oh yeah, don't don't watch the trailers for Barbarian. Okay. Um, and I'm not one to like, I firmly believe that you cannot spoil a great movie, but like, uh, this is a movie where I think that the, the subversion of expectations based on tropes that are being set up is kind of integral. Oh, perfect. Uh, I love that. Because like, I don't know what I expected, but it, it wasn't that (laughs) (laughs) it's, it wasn't that, uh, it does a really good job of subverting expectations that basically every turn like not to go off on a a barbarian rant here but um remember we talked about triangle of sadness and i said that if the movie had been able to keep me guessing like right to the end i would have Mm -hmm. loved it more than i already did and Mm -hmm. barbarian is that movie like barbarian like at the very the very end i'm like okay i know what's gonna happen but there was like two minutes left like three minutes (laughs) right like that that's not often that a movie can keep you guessing out of all people no, no, and it was, uh, it was, and even when it did, when there's stuff, when stuff happened, I'm like, okay, I know what's about to happen in a given scene. The way it happened was just so ridiculous and wonderful. Mm. I, I loved, I loved it. It's such a wild ride. Yeah, I want to find time for that for sure. Yeah. Uh, as for my perfect, my perfect three, so I'd probably want to do like an eras thing. So I'd probably start with my one of my all-time favorite horror movies, which is the 1933 classic, The Invisible Man. Oh, interesting. To start yeah. with? Huh. Yeah. Yeah. And then cool. probably come to something in the 80s. So probably still Army of Darkness, because you got to have Raimi in there somewhere. Yeah. Or maybe Evil Dead 2 instead. Mm. Uh, and then something more modern, like uh, like a Barbarian or... Uh, maybe something. The thing is, I'd like to throw in like a much more like slow, methodical 
terrifying one like a hereditary or a midsummer but i think that's a different that's a different one two three right like it so is barbarian might be a good choice i was thinking like if 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 i had a screen uh in this sort of scenario i would be inviting as many people as possible and and i want to show them a good time and i'm not sure midsummer's that movie right <laughs> uh even though it's it's a wonderful movie it's it's a jolt to the soul isn't it and i wanted something a bit more entertaining but um, yeah I, that's a good way to put it jolt to the soul i'd i'd put it follows in though i think uh i'm struggling to think of a better modern horror movie it's just so perfectly my thing as well and um it's so brilliantly done and i think it's, it's interesting we're gonna stuff. We're going to get into this a little bit, I think, when we get through some of these episodes of Cabinet of Curiosities, but I've been thinking a lot about the types of horror that we enjoy, and just based on what I know of the way you watch horror movies in particular, like, I think I could accurately predict what horror movies you would like and which ones you wouldn't, oh, yeah. which, I think is, which I think is interesting. And I was really hoping you'd connect with more of this series, but in hindsight, looking at the content... I'm surprised you didn't connect with more of them, but there's some that I'm very not surprised that you didn't. <laughs> yeah. The problem is, like, I've always said to you, these are the kind of things I don't want to watch. Like, religious horror or... Like, and one of those things is, like, overt gore without a reason. And I've been thinking a lot about this because I love The Thing. And The Thing is body horror. <laughs> like, it is a body horror. And I'm thinking, why does the thing, why am I okay with the thing? And I think it's because it's got to be earned and it's got to be a part of it. And when when gore is there purely just a shock, it doesn't work for me at all. And yeah. I, a lot of my See, reaction with many of these is, like, the quality's just not there. And it just uses gore. It's like, oh, we're going to shock you with gore, more gore. It's like, no, no thanks. Yeah, we'll get into it when we go through each episode, but yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. I fundamentally disagree that it's there for shock mm. in all but maybe one case. Yeah, I but think anyway. that's the crux the crux of our disagreement with these, isn't it? Is that point. But let's yeah. go through. Let's go through. So let's just dive right in. We got an hour and so we got eight episodes to get through. So let's start yeah. with the first episode, which is titled Lot 36. Now Lot 36 is based on a story by Guillermo del Toro, executive producer of the series. Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, which is fitting, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, the teleplay was written by del Toro and Regina Corrado, and it was directed by Guillermo Navarro. And is the story of a man who is a racist piece of crap who buys a um, storage locker that's been abandoned. Um, and he uh, doesn't necessarily like what he finds inside. Uh, I don't know how much of this story I really want to spoil ahead of time, but this is one of the ones that I thought was fine. I thought it was fine. That was that's the thing about an anthology series is that I sort I sort of like that it is a mixed bag. You know, there's good ones and bad ones, and this one is one of the ones in the middle for me. Um, I didn't think it was overtly horrific. There's a tentacle monster, but it's not like overtly. Horrific, and uh, I thought that the end, the ending in particular was very fitting with the subject matter. How did you feel about it? 
So my reaction to the first one was pretty good framing for a lot of them. I I watched it and thought, wow, this is they are just not even going to bother with subtlety or nuance at all. Tim Tim Blake Nelson, who is genuinely a great actor, and there's a couple. This is going to be my reaction to a couple of people in this anthology. Did not have a good day <laughs> in this episode. Like, and, and I don't think it helps that he's written without any subtlety at all. He might as well walk on stage and look directly into camera and go, "Howdy, I'm a massive racist." <laughs> That's my North American accent. Uh, yeah, but I sort of, I sort of don't mind. Like, I don't <laughs> I mind how saying... old school and stagey this one. And actually, to be fair, the the next one in particular feels. I sort of like that about it. Yeah, it's. I just felt like. There was nothing for me to work out myself. There was nothing. There was no kind of nuance for me to guess his his kind of attitude towards people. And like he's needlessly, he's really, really horrible to someone who, of course, is pivotal later on. But there's he, there's also some really stupid logic jumps in this one that don't make any sense. It's not just oh no, don't go into the basement. That's a stupid decision. It's like oh, I'm. There's one point where he's looking at something directly and it's very, very clear this is exactly the thing that another guy who was with was hinting it was going to be. And it's laid out in front of him and he he disturbs the area of around it. I'm trying not to spoil anything to go and get something. And then suddenly it comes for him. He's like, oh no, I disturbed the area around it. And it's, I'm now surprised that it's coming for me. It's like, what we... like. Up to that moment, he might as well have been shopping. He's like, he might as well have been just walking across the aisle in the supermarket. And and that's how I feel about his whole that's... performance. And, and the whole thing was just like, it's almost like he wasn't reacting to what was in front of him. It didn't feel that was, real. That was the whole no. point of the whole thing, though. Um, like, he, yeah, like, he doesn't but... at any point believe in... So, like, the whole thing, there's just, there's just Lovecraftian horror that he's clearly barreling towards. And everyone's like, oh... You are barreling towards a Lovecraftian horror, sir. And he's like, just how much is this thing I have worth? Give me the thing that's worth money. And that's like, I get what you're saying, but also it's not out of character with the rest of the story that he just went, oh, there's there's the thing. And he went to pick it up and unleash the horror because he's so single-minded. And yeah, but he's just like, it. yeah, I'll just shuffle through this salt circle. Oh, no, I shuffle through the salt circle. Like, uh it, it sounded like, like he even knew so or cared what like what the salt circle even was. Well, like, he clearly he clearly didn't care. He and also like, didn't react react to the secret panel that they walked through and found the thing in front of them. He didn't basically didn't react to it at all. Like he's got this the the thing that is laid out in front of them that was the thing that was hidden by the previous owner, and there's no look of like in his face it's like what am I looking at? It's like well. <laughs> Guess I'll get my book. <laughs> just, it was. It just didn't have any authenticity or re, or, or like reaction to it. And it, we're gonna get when we get to the eighth one. Like that's the contrast of what I'm talking about here. There was no human reaction from him. Uh, the way it was directed, the way it was written, but it, the whole thing was like this. It was so heavy-handed and completely without any kind of subtlety. <laughs> this is just this is just the first one. Yeah, so I'm real hot, hot takes at the at the head of the column here. I I watched the first one. I'm like, well, I really hope the rest are better than that because I was genuinely surprised at, at, at how it panned out. Yeah, I mean, again, I I I just I don't know. I I thought the characterization was consistent. I thought it was 
honestly wholly believable that a right-wing, self-centered, total racist would look down at a horrible thing that he couldn't possibly believe in, even though it's right in front of him, and and then not believe in it. Like, and just be like, well, that's obviously not a thing. I'm going to go grab this other thing. Like, does not bother me. If anything, that's kind of the point of the story. It's even the point of his interaction with the other person early on who he tells to go back to their own country, even though she's, you know, American. Um, and then she becomes pivotal at the end. Like he doesn't believe that it could happen to him, even though it's happening to him. I don't even think that's that out of the ordinary in this kind of cinema, really. But yeah, this is, I didn't think this is one of the stronger ones, but I didn't think it was bad at all. So, and Tim Blake Nelson, I thought he was quite good. I thought he was, I thought he was almost too believable as a redneck racist piece of shit. Almost. He didn't, have much. He, didn't, he didn't have much to work with, to be fair. But, like, I just, like, you know when you watch a performance when someone has to play an evil racist and you're like, yep, is he maybe an evil racist in real life? Like, you know, I don't think Tim Blake Nelson is a racist in real life, but no, sometimes, I, like, <laughs> like, whew, like, Tim, yeah. if you're listening, if you're listening, we don't believe you're a real racist. No, I mean, he just, just played one really shockingly well. Mm-hmm. I Good. Well, that's our first fundamental disagreement of at least seven. So let's move on. <laughs> okay, number two. Number two, uh, Graveyard Rats, which is, uh, how do you even describe this one? It's a story of a man who owns a graveyard, who is also a grave robber, who owes a bunch of money to the wrong kind of people in probably the 1900s, late 1800s um and he becomes convinced that rats in his graveyard are stealing bodies and we follow that to its illogical conclusion i i don't know i know you didn't like this one either so i'll let you start for different reasons though i i mean i i think it was overwritten as well like that there was I Some, would uh, I would fully was, concur that I think this one was trying to do a little bit too much. Yeah, it, 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 dialogue and story, and there's one plot element that really could have been completely cut out. I'm very very interested because you've got David Hewitt, who I generally like. He's been around God years and years. He's and, also uh, been so this one. Sorry, Graveyard Rats. Based on the short story by Harry Henry Kuttner and teleplay and directed by Canadian working Canadian horror director Vincenzo Natale, who David Hewlett works with, I believe, basically right. every time. Yeah, like every time. He had he had a lot of dialogue. He's got almost some monologues at one point, and it didn't add anything at all. So I think the dialogue was overwritten. The plot was trying to do way too much. But what I found really interesting in this one, and that I really love that kind of victorian london setting i think there's loads of um loads of potential in that setting and i like the idea of digging up graves, like penniless people digging up graves and looking for gold teeth and stuff and um i'm i'm very very claustrophobic and so when i watch something like the descent or really anything where anyone gets trapped in anything (laughs) phone booth for god's sake like it triggers my claustrophobia and i um i kind of enjoy that when i watch a horror where that that triggers that it's kind of enhances it 
because I can I I get the reaction of being trapped, but I know I'm not. So it's kind of a little a microdosing claustrophobia to, to, <laughs> to feel like. And like when I watched the descent, that is a deeply uncomfortable. I can't. I can't decide which is scarier in the descent, the monsters or the bit where she gets trapped in that rock ledge and she's trying to squeeze through. Like that is the edge of what I'm able to cope with. Uh, the answer is that those are both scary. Both, <laughs> both of them so are this, scary. This is this is a movie that basically uh, has David Hewitt doing the the terrible thing of crawling into a, an underground tunnel. He's trying to get something um, that's worth a lot of money, so he he positions himself to. To get this thing, but he's he's scared of the rats. He's angry at the rats who who seem to thwart his efforts to get the, like gold teeth and stuff. And he finds out there's one like very valuable object. So he he dig he positions himself close to the burial and then digs tries to dig the body up immediately to get this item, but um, sees that the rats have got there first. And and here's our here's our first moment that he doesn't like the rats, but he crawls in after them, which I didn't believe that didn't land for me but my point is a lot of this movie is him crawling through increasingly smaller spaces and in fact the the end of this story is a, a very small space and the panic inside that space and i felt nothing didn't feel claustrophobic once and i am genuinely surprised that happened I think maybe, maybe I love rats. I had a pet rat once, so it's really hard. It's really, really hard <laughs> to see. And um, when you see a, a, any animal on screen, uh, movie animals are the happiest animals you've ever met in your life because they work for treats. Um, so, you know, these little rats are like the happiest little rats. But the way the story was told, um, it, it introduced a couple of elements that one was completely unnecessary and the other was like a, a big bad rat, if you like. But it didn't use um, uh, what, something from reality, like, like a king rat with all the tails tied together. And Terry Pratchett used this really well in uh, his book Maurice, which uh, the antagonist is a, a king rat, but it moves as one sentient being. It's really scary. And instead you had this really very bad like muppet cg rat monster that look a bit a bit like r-a-u-s from princess bride and so that the whole thing again missed the mark for me in terms of what it could have done with a rat why introduce this other supernatural element and most importantly why i didn't feel trapped or claustrophobic in any of it which really surprised me well, I can tell you why you didn't feel trapped or claustrophobic. It's because as you progressed through the tunnels, they got bigger, not smaller. <laughs> yeah, but not at the like, end. Like, like right the at the end. very end, it gets small again. Uh, and it's like, to be fair, I think I think this one tries to do a little too much. And I think the end is, the very end is a little bit rushed. And so when it ends up in that small space, again, um, it's uh, it's over quite quickly. But as he progresses further into the tunnels, those tunnels get bigger the whole time. Like, they get bigger and well, wider the whole time. There's one that it collapses in, and he has to crawl through. Before he gets to that big chamber, He there's one that collapses on top of him, and it, it does get smaller for a while. Uh, just that one moment that he has to crawl through. The rest of the time, they're yeah. getting bigger to accommodate the giant, uh, which I believe <laughs> is a fully puppet rat. I don't think there's... 
much. Oh. I mean, there's some CG, but I think my it's mostly puppet. My mistake. It didn't. Um, I uh, and this is another one. That, like, obviously, I'm about to disagree because I kind of, of loved how stagey and old school this one felt. And again, like, I love like the original Universal monsters. I love you know '50s schlocky horror and sci-fi. So this kind of thing is directly up my alley. And uh, mm -hmm. I I kind of loved. I really loved David Hewlett. I thought you know it was a great appearance by Julian Richings, who's like a legendary Canadian uh, character actor. Um, and I sort of, I just loved how it played out. I thought it was, yeah. I thought it was too much. Um, I don't think it was the strongest one, but it was strong enough in intent and in the way it was staged that, um, and like, you know, me, like, I, I can't believe we didn't talk about this when we talked about Raymond and Ray, but I do generally like things that feel like plays. And this felt like a play to me, like felt like a stage mm -hmm. production. Or at the very least, like an old school soundstage production, and I, I very much enjoyed that aspect of it. So, yeah. Are you frozen? You look like you're frozen. Yeah, no, you cut out for a second, but you're back now. Uh, um, no, that's fine. I, I, uh, again, at the end of this one, it, it, I felt nothing. I was at the end of the first one. I felt nothing. I was like, well, it's because I didn't like it. And the second one. Any, any, uh, I'm going to spoil a tiny bit here, but anytime there's someone trapped in a coffin, like panicking and uh, like clawing at the coffin, so your keel bills and your spore looses and your, uh, which was made into the, uh, the vanishing. Um, and, um, there's another one. Can't remember it. That, that is one of the most terrifying nightmares I could even imagine and so whenever i see that on screen it, it's it, that terror is very real it's like in my blood and i just like by the end of this i i was genuinely surprised i didn't feel that but there we go interesting interesting well we all react differently to different things let's move on um <laughs> uh, I don't want so to be negative about everything <laughs> Well, that's your choice, sir. It's your uh, choice. It's, uh, we're going to move on to so the third episode, which, uh, spoiler alert, Simon didn't like. Uh, probably because this one actually has yeah. some fairly strong body horror elements. Yeah. Um, this one is called The Autopsy. It was based on the short story by uh, noted writer Michael Shea. And the teleplay was by David S. Goyer, which to me is kind of a knock against, but that's a whole other thing. And <laughs> yeah. directed by David Pryor, um, who's probably most notable for having directed The Empty Man in 2020. Um, this one stars F. Murray Abraham and uh, Glenn, Glenn Terman and Luke Roberts. and is a story of a man who's called to a mine where there's been uh, an accident, an explosion, and he has to autopsy several of the bodies to try and determine how exactly these men died for insurance reasons. Um, but good insurance reasons. He's trying to make it figure out that they that the, that the insurance company, the company will have to pay, basically. Mm. And in the course of his investigation, he finds that uh, some irregularities and eventually that one of the one of the miners is not as they seem. Uh, and spoiler alert, there's a monster. Um, <laughs> yeah, this one is another one that I thought was, you know, when I first, when I first watched it, I was pretty sure this one would be my favorite one. Um, 
And my my estimation of it, I would say it's gone down exactly, but the later ones, a couple of the later ones, sort of very much, very easily surpassed it in terms of my mm -hmm. estimation. But I have a strong bias for F. Murray Abraham reading any, he could read the phone book and I would be enthralled by it probably. Um, <laughs> and I just really like the setup. The latter half of this one has, is basically just an extended conversation with the evil thing. And I very much enjoyed that. I thought that the body horror elements were well-placed and well-executed and thoroughly gross. And I fully get why you didn't react well to that. And, and this brings me to why I didn't connect with many of these. And the body horror in this one, it's a little bit in the, in the, um, in Graveyard's Rats as well. There's a tiny bit in Lot 36, a little bit more Graveyard Rats. This is so uncomfortable to watch, but not in a good way, not like Ted's way. It, it almost feels like it's, uh, way too much, like, shown on screen. It takes, no, long, it's a, long, it's a body a long, horror. Long, like... <laughs> yeah, I know. So I'm. I, this isn't. I. I don't like body horror. I don't like it. But saying that, I, again, come back to the thing. I love the thing. The thing. I think it's a part of the. Oh, I don't know. This didn't work for me at all. I actually didn't think F. Murray Abraham was very good. Uh, yeah. Um, well. I think, I think I think it's interesting you compare it to the thing because, and just to be a hundred percent clear up front, the thing is an unassailable classic at this point, uh, mm -hmm. and it's obviously very influential. It's also not that horrifying by today's standards in terms of its body horror, and even the 2011 really? prequel remake thing is like parts of it are horrifying, but like it's sort of easy to get past. In in a because it's so sort of so fantastical, whereas this one, the autopsy, is literally an autopsy happening before your face. Like it's it's very in your face and it's very realistic. And I totally get why you might react poorly. Yeah, I just don't want to watch. I just don't want to watch that kind of thing. That there, there's to be fair. To be fair, to be fair, there is there is one decision in this that I loved and. I, uh, how much can we spoil her? You mentioned a conversation with the with the the monster that's taken root in one of the dead guys, and it, it's a bit messy and convoluted how we get to that point. There, there's definitely different stages to the story, and I didn't really like the first half. It, it felt really un, a, a bit unfocused. There's there's when the conversation begins, it's not it doesn't go as you expect in that the Alien, the monster, if you like, speaks extremely eloquently. And the actor, Watson Luke Roberts, has got a delivery that is just the right kind of um, uncanny valley, but for voices. Like, it's human, but there's something off about it. I wonder if they modulated it slightly, but his delivery is really, really good. And I loved, there was a, a five-minute window where the alien is talking to F. Murray Abram, sort of uh, explaining what's going to happen and what's going on. And, and it's like humans talking to ants. And it's that kind of, you. we've been here forever, and, and of course we feed on you, and of course we do this. I thought that was incredible. Really, really good. And then it got to, it just went, and I know that's the point of this, but the end of this movie 
is focused like disembowelment and body horror and yeah. blood and guts and intestines and lungs and rib cages and and it's just not and scalpels and it's not what I want to watch. This is just not anything that I find interesting to watch. I don't find it hor- um, horrifying. I find it horrific, and I think there's a difference. Um, interesting. And it so it just didn't work for me. I just I I I was almost angry is not the right word, but I got to the end and it just felt like wasted because I that moment where the corpse reanimates. And the alien's like, oh, I can't do the voice. But it's like, oh, good afternoon. Oh, yes, this is what's going to happen. And I thought that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And and then it, and then we got to the ending, and the ending was just like, it was disturbing, but not in a good way. So, no, it didn't work for me. But this is maybe a preference thing. I don't know. I mean, I think it's definitely a preference thing because art is subjective. And, well, uh, you, you know, we all have the things we react to. I, I, again, liked that this one was an extended conversation. I liked that, like, early on in this one, you find out that F. Murray Abraham's character also has cancer, and you could totally read most of what's happening as an extended metaphor for his cancer and his reaction to it. Yeah. Um, and I've, and I've, I, just always, I just always like F. Murray Abraham, so mm-hmm. I really like this one. And Glenn Turman is also always good value as well. He always shows up and is, you know, sage and amazing. So, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry I made you watch it. I am a little bit sorry to connect with so many of them. But uh, yeah. it was a horror show, so maybe I should have known better. But the, no, there's, there's, I think with all anthologies, you know, I, I love something like Love, Death and Robots because it is an anthology and every one has a different angle on the story it wants to tell. There are so many different kinds of horror. And I felt like by by like the seventh one of these, the the punchline always seemed to be body horror. And I'm like, there's so many other kinds of horror. And I eventually got it in the eighth one, but I feel like it was a bit of a missed opportunity to explore different um, different kinds of horror. I like oh, see, I would, I would, I would argue that they definitely do do that. But let's uh, and probably I think the fourth episode, the one we're about to talk about. It's probably the uh, first g- really good example of that. Uh, it is called The Outside. It was based on a short story by Emily Carroll with a teleplay by Haley Z. Boston and directed by Anna Lily Amirapour, who makes really fucking weird movies, and I kind of adore her for that. Uh, it stars Kate Micucci and Martin Starr and Dan Stevens, and it is the story of a woman who desperately wants to be accepted by her group of peers at her work and um, a late night, uh, what would you call it? Infomercial sells her some beauty gel to make that happen. And it is, I don't think it's anywhere near as gross as the other ones, but it's certainly weird. It's definitely weird. It's It's delightfully weird. It's delightfully weird. I, I can, I can, I don't think this one is one of my favorite ones. Like this is another one that for me lands very much in the middle. But I, I've definitely seen a bunch of people online talking about how much they loved this one, um, and I totally get that. I, I didn't make it to the end of this one because I watched it. I tried to watch it straight after the autopsy, and I, I felt sick to my stomach watching the autopsy. And then we get to like 
three quarters of the way through the outside and things start peeling and slushing and I was like, you know what? <laughs> I can't, I can't do this anymore because <laughs> I watch over lunchtime. I'm, I'm watching everything we watch. I can't watch in the evenings. Uh, and so I have like a lunchtime, I work from home. So I, whenever we're talking about the podcast, I watch it in chunks over lunchtimes and I'm trying to eat, I'm eating orzo and chicken pasta whilst watching this woman's face, like peel off into her hands. I'm like, you know what? I no. It's, I'm not. I'm not connecting with this one either. That's well, a shame. I think this one actually ends. Uh, the the outside actually has, I think, one of the strongest metaphors for. It's basically the story of a woman who's sacrificing who she is on the inside to be accepted for who she is on the outside. I think mm-hmm. it, it's the ending, especially, is pulled off extremely well. Um, it's one of those ones where you want. I think I said this somewhere else, but you watch it. And you think to yourself, you know, I think other people could have directed and or starred in this one, but I don't think it would be anywhere near as interesting or good if they did. You know what I mean? Like, it's this is very much an Anneli Amrapour film. Kate Micucci, I think, is next level in it. I think she works really well with Martin Starr. Dan Stevens is legitimately always great. Uh yeah. And his small part as the like late night infomercial host mm-hmm. with the vaguely German threatening accent <laughs> is I thought he was I thought he was wonderful, and it's just the way there's a I don't want to spoil it but the like the last few shots of this episode, um, are really haunting for nothing to do with body horror like no nothing to do with the like gloopy stuff you've been through for the last forty five minutes. Oh, okay. um, and I, I, I think it is actually, it's not my favorite, but I totally get why people are gravitating toward it. I think it's the, the that extended metaphor of like changing yourself to fit in, I think is resonating with a lot of people and for good reason. It's really well executed. Hmm. So. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, now, did you watch the next one? I don't remember. Yep. Um, I, uh, it, I mean, yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to it then. Uh, episode five is called Pickman's Model. It is based on a somewhat famous short story by Lovecraft with a teleplay by Lee Patterson and directed by Keith Thomas, uh, who I'm sure, I don't know what he's actually directed now that I say his name out loud. Uh, <laughs> oh, he directed The Vigil, which I think, I don't know if I saw that or not. And I definitely didn't see the new Firestarter because why would you remake Firestarter? Mm. But anyway... Uh, starring uh, Ben Barnes and Crispin Glover, uh, and it's a Lovecraft story, so do with that information what you will. The monsters are real, people. The monsters are real, <laughs> and they are older than us, and they are hungry. So and they're terribly racist. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, they really um, are. Um, this one's an interesting one because I, I really, again, I really like the. Uh, the era this is set in and it's got a couple of eras and about i um i yeah. like the casting of ben barnes i think ben barnes is a really interesting actor who hasn't age just doesn't age and it, was, it really amused me when you told me he's done a version of dorian gray because of, he would be the perfect actor for that because he just he is oh i, I just assume uh, that his like a mid-2000s version of dorian <laughs> gray was a documentary <laughs> <laughs> And I really like him as an actor, even though um, 
there's a time jump and they have to work really, really hard to make him look older because he's so youthful. But he uh, he's he's really interesting. He's got a very good connection with his eyes. And and then I saw Crispin Glover was in it. I thought, wow, I love Crispin Glover. What what's um what's your opinion on Crispin Glover's performance in this uh, episode? I honestly have no idea. This is another one that lands somewhere like in the basically like if we were going to rate them individually, it would probably be a like a fine three star episode. I find Crispin Glover to be utterly compelling because I can never tell what he's going to do next, and he makes super weird choices all he the really time, does. and. I thought he's sort of perfectly suited to be like the basic story is that Ben Barnes is an artist and Crispin Glover is another artist that he meets who's older, who's super talented, but paints and draws all this very horrific imagery that like basically drives Ben Barnes character mad. Mm. Um, And it later turns out that it's all real. Like, I don't think it's a spoiler to spoil uh, a short story that came out in 1926. But, Especially for Lovecraft, like <laughs> yeah. that's the root of everything. Yeah, it's all real. Um, and I thought he was a really good choice to play that sort of character who's like, "Look at my art. I'm just drawing what I see." Kind of craziness. And if anything, Long Island accent. Uh, I can't really replicate uh, Crispin Glover's could, accent, and I don't think he's so. <laughs> not sure Crispin Glover could either. <laughs> I thought I thought Ben Barnes did a really good job with his sort of like yeah. diction cadence, his sort of like mm-hmm. mid Atlantic ish thing he was doing, mm-hmm. mid Atlantic, mid New England type thing. Um, but what I was going to say is I thought that Chris McGlover would be a really good choice, and if anything, I thought maybe his performance was a little too muted for the material. Oh, interesting, uh, because I feel like someone who is painting the things and drawing the things that his character is drawing might be just a little bit. Uh, crazier, for lack of a better term. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe just a little bit more, or at the very least, like I know he's his character is also supposed to be like trying to break into the art world of this time and place and era, and he's being refused because of the content of his art. And if anything, he's just not really that frustrated by it. He's like, oh, I got rejected um, again. Woe was me, you know. Um, I think this one was very much saved by the. Ben Barnes and by the production value, um, there is a bit of body horror at the end, which I'm sure. Did you even mm-hmm. did you get that far? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I, I don't think it was out of place or anything. I just you know is there's a gruesome moment when a thing happens that you by that point you're like, of course this is going to happen. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I thought it was I, fine. I mean, the the thing the uh, painting that sticks with Ben Barnes. It's funny, he's obsessed with another painting over a number of years. Um, it mm-hmm. depicts depicts a a feast of body horror. And so that's his uh, he has a couple of visions. Are they visions? Are they real? With, with uh, there's one pretty significant um, dining table moment and then which feeds into the end as well. But again, I know it's Lovecraft and I know it's a, a story, but I was by, by this episode I was like, well, of course, this is the, of course, this is the end to this episode. It's it's more body horror, and it's not on the level of the autopsy. But by this point, I was like, just there are other other things you can do to shock people than to show like severed heads and worms coming out of eyes and eyes gouged out. Like this is, 
I didn't it think stop, it was. It stops being shocking. It stops being interesting. I didn't think it was out of place, though. I thought it was, uh, you know, like sure. I mean, yeah. Like I said, this I, one I did, was I, this one was fine. I thought this one, like I say, I thought this one was was fine. I thought it was fine. I did like. I I really like that central idea of art, like haunting someone and mm-hmm. creating madness. I've, I have seen another film like that, and now I have no idea what that film is but i'd like that i really like that idea and, and parts of this were were done quite interestingly but again in the last third i think it just just lost it for me completely right which is a shame because there was a lot of potential here yeah well let's move on to the next one um uh which i think is the main one that we agree on maybe i don't know did you watch episode <laughs> six did you get through so episode I, six? I scanned, um, I, I skipped through episode six and watched some key um, scenes. I, I'm i yeah. not sure we do agree on this one because you didn't like this one, right? So I think this one has a lot of interesting things going for it. This one is called Dreams in the Witch House. It's another Lovecraft adaptation uh, with a teleplay by Mika Watkins and directed by Catherine Hardwick, who by all accounts is, I mean, she did... 13 and Lords of Dogtown and uh, I think the first Twilight, which is maybe the only good one, goodish one. Um, like she's not a bad director. Um, I did not like this one. And I think almost entirely because it does have stuff that I like, just to be clear, I think the, the monster design, the, the titular witch who is played by oh. Naya Vardalos is a wonderful design and oh, super yeah. creepy. I think yeah. some of the like witchcraft stuff that happens is super creepy. I thought yeah. that uh, this one has a, a supporting role played by an actor who I like called, uh, who you like as well, I know, called Ismael Cruz Cordova, most recently of Rings of Power, but more uh, we both loved. He was uh, in that movie Settlers we, t- we talked about a year or two ago. Oh, um, is that him? Oh. Yeah, I thought he was really good, but mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Rupert Grint. I don't. I don't. I don't think you were very good in this. I'm sorry. I I, I thought he was and okay. Just, no, like I like Stagey. Um, I like I like the idea. This is basically this one is basically an extended metaphor about losing yourself, losing your life mm-hmm. to obsession. And I did not. There's one moment at the very end where I actually think he was legitimately great. But it comes right at the end, and it's really too little too late for me. I did not right. connect with this one at all. And also, this one has a CGI rat character that oh, is just, so just, bad. just annoying. And, like, I know really that... Really bad. I know that it's, like, straight out of the story. Um, this is a Lovecraft story that I haven't read. And I know it's straight out of that story, and I did not... I just didn't connect with this one at all. Uh, I think this is my least favorite of the series by a pretty wide margin because I generally liked the series. Not generally. I liked the series. This one I didn't like. I I perhaps liked the bits of this I saw or connected with it a bit more than other ones. For everything you've said, really. I I, um, I mean, mean, if you skip to the highlights, that would sort of make sense. (laughs) (laughs) But the... um, the design of the witch as being very uh, like uh, bra- like branches for skin, almost like part of the forest. I thought that was 
really, really yeah. good and uh, with the glowing ember eyes. Very creepy. And um, I didn't mind Rupert Grint. I thought his accent was all right, at least. And um, it wasn't the, I like I like the idea of uh, him being obsessed with getting into this netherworld and rescuing the, the soul of his sister, if you like. Who, But even that wasn't dealt with brilliantly. But then it ends with a bit, it ends with more body horror. But you you can you can avoid the little bit of body horror because the CGI like Jiminy Cricket Rat is so bad, <laughs> so so bad. Um, and then it, there's a twist at the end, and it's just like, oh, this no, it just doesn't doesn't land, does not stick that landing at all. Yeah. So it's some interesting interesting moments in here, but yeah, a bit wasted, I thought. Yeah. Oh well. They can't all be winners. Uh, so, anyway. uh, okay. so now moving on to the final two. Now these two, I think, are the strongest two episodes. Um, and I think um, I I first have to ask. So we're going to move on to number seven, which I think is the strongest episode in the whole series. Um, oh, do you? I really do. I really, really do. Oh, that surprises uh, me. And I am 100% certain that you do not. Yeah, <laughs> um, no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, and I, we haven't talked I about this one because I know you watched it like right before we started recording. So yeah, I am 100% yeah. sure that you did not connect with this one. No. But I think it's the best one in the series. Um, followed closely by episode eight. But this is, uh, we're going to talk about the viewing. Now, this one is, and for anyone who like knows this person's films, this one is directed by Panos Cosmatos. And if you know his films, you know exactly what you're about to get to. Uh, was yeah. it? And it's uh, written it. by him, yeah. written by him, and uh, co-written by Aaron Stewart. On they most recently famously uh, collaborated on the Nicolas Cage mindfuck Mandy. Uh, and if you have seen his other movies, like I say, you know what you're in for. Um, this one spends ninety nine percent of its runtime just ramping up tension and horror, and feeding the main characters space cocaine, and then <laughs> and then shows them, and thus you, something truly horrific that made me legitimately squirm in my seat. Oh, what's that? Uh, oh, did you not get to the end? Uh, no, oh, no yeah. I, turned off, I turned off when um, her faces started melting and exploding. I'm like, oh, it's Cronenberg. No, I don't need to watch this. It's fine. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, uh, the, but well, yeah, like the... Well, the, the Basically, like, the story of this one is that Peter Weller is a fabulously wealthy person, and he's gathered together a group of people of interesting, uh, like, people. One of them is, played by Eric Andre, is a musical genius, and one played by Steve, I can never remember if his name is pronounced, Aji, or Agi, anyway, he's a novelist, and one is, like, a mentalist, and one is a physicist. And he's gathered them together. And for most of the film, they're just sitting in a room and talking. And that room is like really high contrast, lit in orange. And Peter Weller is delightfully, wonderfully esoteric and weird. You know, the kind of rich person who like has built his house with a soundscape in mind. And, you know, full of that sort of uh, ego armor that only money can give a very wealthy person. Uh, and eventually he reveals that he's gathered them together to show them something. And when he shows them that thing, uh, that's when shit gets horrifying and weird. 
there's a there's a monster it's made of goop and horns and electricity somehow people's oh, faces yeah. people's faces melt uh people are subsumed into the goo mm. and it spends i think i think if you skipped through this one which i understand that you maybe did i think yeah, you might have missed out on the experience of it because it's it's so good at ramping up everything you were feeling until that moment that I feel like without the ramp up, it would just be too much. Yeah. I got to the monster coming out of the table and, uh, multiple people's faces seemed to be melting and remelting. And I was like, yeah, I don't need, I don't need any more context. I'm good. So what's yeah. the horrific thing that made you shudder? Just the whole monster at the end. The oh, whole, Oh, it's the, the, the click. Right. Okay. Like the big, the, the big gooey orange. Like if you see the, the individual uh, episode post for this one, it's a pair of like yeah. orange horns with like goo strung between them. And like that whole mm. monster freaks me out. Just freak me out. Freak me oh, out, man. Interesting. And, uh, I, I thought that Peter Weller was great. And I thought in particular, I thought that Charlene Yee, who plays the physicist character mm-hmm. and Eric Andre, mm-hmm. who plays the music character were great and interestingly, really great together. They have a great moment at the end where uh, they are—they literally look at each other and we're like, "Did we just see that? <laughs> Was that that happened?" Right? And it's, it's such a wonderful moment between them. And I just now I just want to see a movie where they are, a movie or a show where they're together and they're just talking to mm-hmm. one another. Um, I thought this one was one of the. It definitely has among the strongest directorial voice because Panos Kostos has a very strong directorial voice and a very distinct aesthetic. And I feel like you're either going to be on board with it or not. For the record, I did not really connect with Mandy. Um, I had lots of people tell me it was an amazing film. And I, when I watched it, I was like, you know, for a movie that has Cenobite bikers and uh, a duel with 10 foot chainsaws, I did not connect with this movie at all. (laughs) It's just, um, and an extended animated sequence in the middle that's a drug trip but anyway like he has a style and this this is the first time that i personally have really connected with something he's made and i thought it was great Hmm, interesting yeah but it's definitely i would say the most horrific of all of them in my opinion yeah and my my opinion on this one is actually notably different from all the others whereas i the others i don't think works this one is very clearly not what I'm not my thing at all and I can see that if you're into that Cronenberg style uh, extreme saturated orange and then extreme in your face uh, body horror it was it was very interestingly shot I can't really think about what it reminded me of but that I think I texted you I was you know what it is his how, stuff? how oversaturated it was and grainy and the, his the... his stuff reminds me of watching a VHS of something I taped off TV in 1980. Yes, oh, it really does. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Actually, yeah, he has a very distinct, and even just the way the characters all dress, like it's very clearly his stuff is very clearly set in the 80s, yeah. uh, right down to the the gold AK-47 and the the computer interface that changes the music in his house by automatically switching eight tracks. You know, his stuff is <laughs> stuck in a late, late seventies to mid eighties mm-hmm. time bubble. Um, yeah. And yeah, this one really worked for me. It's... How, do, how do you, how do you feel about 
um, father and son Cronenberg stuff, like the most recent um, Cronenberg son movie. I watched the trailer and I knew that I could never watch that movie. It's just, I, I wouldn't be able to make it through. So I have not seen as much of Brandon Cronenberg's stuff as I maybe could or should have. Possessor has been on streaming services That's right. Uh, that I could watch for ages and I just haven't made the time for it. I thought that his earlier film, Antiviral, which I saw in, mm. in cinemas, was <sighs> very horrific. <laughs> But also, like, so, like, very well executed and interestingly horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I haven't seen Possessor. Uh, and Cronenberg, very generally speaking, I mean, he doesn't, he has a style, but he's also dabbled in lots of other things. I generally like his stuff. He's a very distinct Canadian voice. And uh, I have liked stuff. I think my one of my favorite Cronenberg films is actually... Um, a history of violence, which isn't really oh, like it's just a just yeah. a just a drama, not really a horror yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But also Scanners, you know, I love Scanners. That's mm-hmm. a great movie. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay, so, should we, should we... so just to, just to be clear here, did you like this one or just respect that it worked? I no, I I uh, respect the very very clear directorial voice. I didn't like it, but only because this this kind of film. I cannot watch. It's not something I get any. Yeah, you should. You definitely, and definitely shouldn't watch his other stuff. No, the ramp up of um, of almost like um, I have a very visceral reaction if someone like screams directly at me, and sometimes movies like this feel like a a long held scream. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but no, it does actually. I'm I'm appreciative of the style. I can't I can't watch it. Um, I mean, this so this whole movie, it spends, like I say, like 99% of its runtime being like, I'm going to show you some things, and you're not going to like them. And then by the time it gets to the end, you're like, I do not like that, sir. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were correct. I should have um, listened. But I, you know, I, I tend to, although I didn't like Mandy again, I do tend to like things that, that give me that... Um, that can actually pay off that vis- visceral reaction, and mm-hmm. this one, this one does that really well. I, I felt great. Okay, so let's move on to the last one, which I think is oh, the second best, and God. you think is the best. The jump in quality from this one, actually, that's not fair because I can't, I can't grade number seven because it's just, it's not my frame. So I, if that's I, your I, favorite, I, then that's fine. The jump in quality from murmuring to literally everything else in this anthology is it's night and day is not even an accurate enough description. Yeah. I I stand by my pre podcast assertion that it is a jump to your preferred style. No, well, I thought thought that like all these, all of these films are very distinctly their own director's style. And I think you just really like Jennifer Kent. I so, think there's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Should we should we agree? Uh, we can we can compromise in the middle of you being wrong there. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. No. Right. Well, the, so before we get into it, the eighth episode is called The Murmuring. It so is good. Written uh, based on a story by Guillermo del Toro, teleplay by Jennifer Kent, directed by Jennifer Kent, famously of 
Uh, I think the Babadook, although I know she's done other oh uh, amazing things like the Nightingale. Um, it stars Essie Davis, also of the Babadook, and Andrew Lincoln, who's most famous for The Walking Dead, but is actually, when you watch anything else he's been in, not a bad actor. Oh, I think he's fantastic. And this is a great reminder of his range because he was a very established actor in the UK before The Walking Dead. And this is a really nice reminder of all the things he can do. He's, I thought he was great in this. Yeah. Uh, it also has one other small part, but um, I don't remember what she was. Anyway, um, I thought this one was wonderful. And I thought it was wonderful for lots of reasons, but I know this one is your favorite um, and maybe the only one you actually liked. Uh, not maybe. We just established it's the only one you actually liked. Um, I think it's wonderful because it's a really well told story. If you liked The Babadook or The Nightingale, like uh, you should just watch this one. It's really good. Um, you know, where the viewing is all about the sort of like, uh, it's really about, you know, the hubris of the, the rich man, the man who thinks he can own everything where, um, and outside I think has a very, like we talked about before, a very strong theme of changing yourself on the outside to be accepted. The murmuring is just about grief (laughs) and it's wonderfully executed and I think part of the reason I like it so much is not only that it's really wonderfully executed, but it's also after seven. And so like Simon, you are not wrong that there's a lot of body horror and there's a lot of intensity in the previous seven. And for me, that actually makes the murmuring more powerful because it's kind of a perfect denouement to all of that. Cause it is, it's a gore free episode. It's heavy on themes and not so much. I mean, there's some amazing visuals, but it's really more focused on the characters and performances and what they're feeling. And I know that is the kind of horror you re- you respond to, but after seven intense episodes and like these came out, they're out now and they came out two a night for four nights, but we had screeners and I think I watched my wife and I watched them all in about two and a half nights. Oh, uh, and uh, it was very nice to get to the murmuring and a you see something you're right, a little different, but also just, a little lighter to sort of like taper it off, you know, taper off the experience a little bit. Lighter. I like yeah. That. yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. Well, after At the least... viewing, I imagine I imagine probably you needed something after the viewing. Yeah. yeah, like if you watched if you watch seven and eight, if you watch set like I think you should watch you can watch these in any order, but you should definitely watch eight right after seven because you will need that bring down a little bit. And I understand you did the opposite of that, so... I did. <laughs> I did. Um, you could just watch eight out of all of them. Um, yes, no, I watched I watched eight, and then I watched bits of seven, and uh, I, I don't want to be... Like, I'm, I feel very negatively about one to six. I, I'm... Seven is a different ball game. It's, I appreciate its style. It's not for me. Eight is, like... If I'm being slightly uncharitable, if you've seen The Babadook, where Jennifer Kent tells a stunning story about a woman processing grief uh, through the metaphor of a haunting in an old building, then it's exactly the same thing happening here. But um, my favorite Hitchcock is The Birds. (laughs) I love... and Really? Yeah, that's my favorite Hitchcock. The Birds is my favorite Hitchcock. The Birds is your favorite Hitchcock. That's right. Huh. And I No no and, no judgment, but I find that very interesting. No, I The Birds is a stunning movie that leaves me just 
speechless every time. And I love um, North by Northwest, I think is one of the great films and The Birds is my favorite um, Hitchcock movie. And so I, I obviously you've got someone in this movie. It's all about someone studying these very um, mysterious murmurations and movements of these um, these but these birds making different shapes, and they're not sure if they're are they telepathic or is there something else going on here? And birds as signifiers of supernatural things, or, or birds acting a way that is weird, is that's going to land really well with me anyway. And then you've got Jennifer Kent, like her framing, her color grading, just everything about her, the way she shoots a movie is so goddamn like pleasurable. Even when you're watching from behind your fingers and uh, it took me ages to watch the Babadook because I don't like jump scares. and I don't like ghost stories generally. Well, that's not true. I don't like monster, like, possession stories so i avoided the babadook for a while until i think i had a chat with you about it and you told me yeah. um, what it's actually i about. just i distinctly I, remember I, that I, chat actually i i watched the babadook and i immediately went and bought it on blu-ray because it just left me just astounded at the way it was shot the way the the ghost was used as grief there's only one jump scare in the babadook and the rest of the time as in this there are jumpy moments but they're all earned and they're they're not there just to make you jump they are there to surprise you and it's just i i think i love that metaphor anyway like processing grief through solving a haunting um and i think i would argue as well the way this is solved is a bit more bow tight like happy bow on it than the end of the babadook is actually is actually so uh not what you expect to happen. It's actually funny. It's I, I've, uh, but that's the Babadook. I really loved the resolution to this. To make it clear, I, I mean loved everything about it. I mean, it's not it's not an exaggeration to say that the murmuring is the only one of these with a purely happy ending, or a happy ending at all. <laughs> yeah. Really, like most uh, uh, most of these stories are people, you know, uh, getting exactly what they ask for. Or getting exactly what they deserve, depending on which we're talking about. Depends if you're a rat. There's one other happy ending if you're a rat. But yeah, this is from a human's perspective. I don't think think the villain winning counts as a happy ending. But anyway. (laughs) Um, And like and like the closest to a happy the closest to a happy ending is really again the outside, which you know, in which the main character gets exactly what she wants, but then at what cost? So it's not really actually happy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas this, like, this, this, this takes like this just follows a character. It's a little more, it's a little more straightforward. It's a little more overt mm-hmm. in its themes of grief and loss and acceptance. And at the end, the character has fully processed what she needs to process. And so mm-hmm. it's a, I think it's a little more straightforward. And I think mm-hmm. it's got a happy ending. And Essie Davis is a wonderful performer. And yeah, Andrew Lincoln is a wonderful performer, and mm-hmm. I I do really legitimately love this one. And the quality of the writing in this is so above one to six. I, I'm not going to speak for seven, but the quality of the writing and the script work and the interchange is because these things, especially when you've got something like the murmuring that is about, for the most part, two people talking and, and not saying things to each other until they decide to talk to each other. 
Like the the script and the performance is going to um, make or break this, and it is brilliantly written and brilliantly acted, and uh, just massive massive gap for me. This had so much nuance and subtlety and intelligence and emotion and humanity in this that for me none of the others had at all. Yeah, I mean that's that's fair. I, I just disagree that the other ones needed it, <laughs> basically. <laughs> At its most basic level, that's what it boils down to. You know, they're all different kinds of horror. The murmuring is a very specific subgenre of, like, processing emotion through something horrible, through something... Mm-hmm. And it's not even horrible, it's, it's mildly horrible, right? Like, it's not... It's definitely a horror story, but it's not, like, horrific. Um, yeah, the thing no, that happened really that, like sets, that. that sets up why they need to process something is horrific, but we're never shown it. Uh, even in the Babadook, you only get like glimpses of it. Um, whereas yeah. most of the rest of these, all the rest of these are ones that are going to show you the thing they want to be horrifying. And I, I dig that. I didn't used to, like there was a time in my life where I was, a uh, very much horror avoidant. Um, and now I'm into it. And I, I, I generally like the whole series because, Again, I just don't think one to six needed that subtlety in the way that I think you needed them to have it. Mm-hmm. One thing I really liked in Murmuring as well was the ghosts themselves. When you see them, the humanoid ghosts, they weren't, save for one very specific and in-story moment, they weren't distended or disfigured or or like... Um, or horrific the, at all. The, yeah, not like the you know that distended jaw look that is so popular in many other ghost stories that I really don't like at all. Um, mm-hmm. And yet they were still, they were still uh, creepy and scary, while still looking like humans. And I I really appreciated how well that was done. It's just she's fantastic. Jennifer Kent is just brilliant, and I I really need to watch The Nightingale, and I cannot wait to see what she makes next as her next feature. Yeah, you should definitely watch tonight, Gail. It is brutal, um, but you should definitely watch mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so your favorite was your favorite was seven. Yeah, the saying. viewing I think is my the one that has left the most lasting. Because uh, the interesting thing is that like most people have been discovering this all week, and when I watched it all before last weekend, and the the viewing and the murmuring are the two that have really stuck with me in terms of just right. like thinking. What am I what am I thinking about this week? It's really been mm-hmm. those two. There's aspects of all of them that I like, um, mm-hmm. but those are the ones where I was like, those are the experiences. Those are the ones. Um, yeah. Those are the ones that like I have legitimately said to other people, like, I hope that he does one of these every year at Halloween now. And I think mm-hmm. if without the last two, I might be like, yeah, it was fine. You know, like mm-hmm. there's stuff I liked and stuff I didn't. But with these two, I'm like, okay, he can, mm-hmm. is, he can let's just get one of these every year. Okay, yeah. Guillermo, like, buddy, let's just get one of these every year. <laughs> well, you know, I, and I'd just like to say, we didn't really talk about it, but I really, really enjoyed his uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents style intro <laughs> to each episode, where he wheels out an actual cabinet of curiosities and opens every episode by pulling something interesting and weird out of the cabinet and setting up the story. I I know I'm I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. I grew up watching The Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Presents uh, and The Outer Limits, mm-hmm. and I 
I, I just I just loved it. I love that he clearly cares so much about this as well. Yeah, he's like, he's always good value, isn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious before we wrap up, which was your wife's favorite? Because she's a horror aficionado more than either of us really. What what was her favorite? I think she's I would have to double check, but I think she's basically in the same spot that you and I are. Like probably I think uh I think probably the murmuring uh or the viewing, but I would have to mm-hmm. I would have to ask. Um yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. That's well lovely. Good. Good, good, good. Well, when when it comes to stars, I know in Letterboxd you've individually starred these. What would you give the whole anthology out of five? Where does uh, it I mean I don't know. Let's see. One I gave it one, two, and two threes, and one, two, three, four fours, and one five. So I guess a four would be the sort of average, the, the mean of those four to five. And I guess you're probably, you're probably leaning more I, towards I, uh, like a two average. Yeah, I'm the, mirror, I'm the mirror image of that because I loved murmuring and... I'm I'm not factoring in number seven, but the others I actively dislike. So I would be a two a two overall, and yet one of them is one of the most uh, effective things I've seen this year. So it's yeah. a little difficult, but I would say a two overall. Well, the interesting thing though is that that's sort of the nature of an anthology, right? Like there's any anthology mm-hmm. show, especially a limited show, you're going to end up with a bunch of good ones, uh, a couple of bad mm-hmm. ones, and maybe maybe one. Or in this case, like this case where you were really looking, we got two, I think, amazing ones. Um, but uh, that's, you know, I sort of I sort of like anthologies for that because you never know what you're going to get next. And if you don't like one, you just move on to the next one. And mm-hmm. yeah, good. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up there. We're a little bit over time. So let's uh, say thank you to everyone who is listening. We love and adore each and every one of you. If you have liked what you have heard, please feel free to give us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you'd like to support us more directly, we do have a Patreon and a Kofi, which you can find in the show notes. And if you'd like to reach out, please do. Uh, you can find me on the Twitters at SmatthewAF. You can find Simon on the Twitters at TemporaryPen. You can find us on the Twitters at AwesomeFriday. CA, we are on other social platforms, and who knows, they might become our primary social platforms if this whole Elon Musk thing pans out the way that it logically will. Um, or you can email us. You can find <laughs> us uh, at awesomefriday.ca. There is a contact form on the right. Send us an email. Tell us what you think. Say hi. Do your thing. Um, we record this here in Vancouver, BC, on the unceded lands of the Musqueam and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. This has been uh, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. I am Matthew. He is Admiral Hot Takes. And thank you so much for joining (laughs) us on this awesome Friday. Bye.